Hello, welcome to Greenlit, with me, the voice which belongs to Toby Earl. Each week on Greenlit, a guest receives the thrilling news their life is to be made into a biopic, and we discuss how that story will be told. Will they star? Which moments won't make it into the adaptation? And will Godzilla make an appearance? In this delectable episode, comedian, actor, writer, author, playwright, and screenwriter Katie Brand will plot the course of this certain blockbuster. Brand's comedy career began in earnest in 2005 with her first Edinburgh show, Celebrities Are Gods. As of this very second in 2021, she starred in numerous TV shows and films, written an award-winning sketch show, a Radio 4 series, a play, a novel, two non-fiction works, and her first screenplay, Good Luck To You, Leo Grand, starring Emma Thompson, has just wrapped and she's a delightful cage fighter. <laughs> Katie Brand, welcome to Greenlit. Thank you very much. I'm glad you raised the cage fighting because people often forget that. When you've, when you've studied the art of cage fighting for as long as you have, and it is does an it get art. annoying? When... And it is an art. Yeah, I mean, a little bit, because it's a big part of, you know, who I am and my career. And I, you know, I think in some ways it's been very overlooked. You know, I wouldn't say I'm a world champion, but I'm a known figure. <laughs> On the scene. I mean, did you quite like it at the start being slightly more anonymous? You know, because you had this comedy career and this writing career. So so not perhaps being so well known as a cage fighter was good in the early stages, but now you kind of want recognition for it. Yeah, I think very much so. I think finally it's time for me. It's I feel it's my time as a cage fighter. I feel like the time is right now for me to step forward and really, you know, really, really push. I feel like I've really achieved a lot of my goals in other areas. And now's the time for, for me to really to really take the prize, I guess, and hopefully get my own range of um, wrist weights uh, and, and other merchandise, you know, associated with cage fighting training, I, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> and just just I mean, obviously, you, you, you started a comedy career, but the end goal was always to have your own range of wrist weights. Yes. Um, will I mean, how what sort of sense of satisfaction will you have once you see once you're out, you know, you walk in the streets and you see a jogger or someone in the park exercising and they've got the wrist weights on. What will that mean to you as a cage fighter and author? <laughs> cage fighter and author. It'll mean there's a book deal in this. You know, I, that's that's always that's always my main hustle. Is there a book deal in this or not? I am. Um, no, I mean, I think it will be absolutely, of course, the absolute peak of my uh, of achievement for me in some ways. But I think also it might leave me bereft of ambition. I mean, you know, what <laughs> What will I do with the rest of my life at that point? You know, so perhaps in a way it'll be a mixed blessing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering, ankle weights, do you, do you graduate? I'm wondering how many people have stopped listening to this because they just simply cannot understand what on earth is going on. <laughs> they seem to be having some sort of meta conversation in which a cage fighting career is a sort of parallel, somehow figurative way of talking about something. <laughs> Is that it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this isn't code, by the way, for anything else. This is just literally about Katie's cage fighting literally career. About by the way, I've forgotten <laughs> about your cage fighting. And I've forgotten what was what was your what's your cage fighting name again? I forget. I I I can't quite. Savage I can't comic. quite remember it. What, Savage comic. That's it. Yeah. And then I added an X later because I I found that that seemed to you know seemed to generate news stories. In the cage fight, and it's press. intimidating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for not intimidating me today so far. You're and welcome. I 
I appreciate the cage fighter persona being dropped for greenlit. Um, before we start, um, is it pronounced biopic or biopic? Well, I thought that very thing when you said it. Um, it might be something I'll need to sort of um, resolve for this podcast series. <laughs> uh. I, um, uh, I've always said biopic. Um, well, now you've got me, I'm not sure. Biopic. I've always thought biopic, not biopic. Biopic sounds a bit more medical. A biopic yes. sounds like the sort, yes. of, a sort of minor procedure that you might get at your at the outpatient department of your local hospital. I'm here for my biopic. I think with with biopic, I can understand it because it kind of gives a sense of individuality to the person. Biopic. Yes, this exactly. is your biopic. Yes. Bio, biopic. It's just no. just rolls out. It doesn't. You know, that, that person isn't special. Biopic. Yeah. If you if you if you if you stress the opic, then that's not even a word. oh there'll be some there'll there'll be some uh, incorrect stresses throughout this i can guarantee that okay fine Um, you put the emphasis in the wrong (laughs) (laughs) place i mean does that when you because you're a screenwriter apparently of course yes as of fairly recently thank you yes as of fairly recently with emma 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 the thompson emma the the emma thompson Um, yes um, she Who agreed you, to I do think it. You must have approached on. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but you, I, I'm assuming you approached her on the cage fighting scene as well because she's also a big cage fighter, <laughs> yes. and that's how you got talking. Yeah, I mean, that's how we met in the ring, actually, which is the best <laughs> place to, in a place of real professional respect. No, I um, yeah, I it was the thing I wrote um in January last year, uh, 2020, and in a sort just on my own, really. I didn't quite know what I was going to do with it. No one had asked me to write it. Um, at that point, <laughs> like no, people were not particularly asking me to write anything. And I just thought, I, I've just got this gap and I don't know what to do with this time. And I, I need to just write something and just get something down on paper. And um, I was feeling frustrated that, you know, I was sending in treatments and pictures and everyone knows what that's like. And some things stick and some things don't. And I just thought, just get a script down that you want to write, that you're interested in, that's not for anyone. And you don't need to worry about what anyone's going to think or what the brief is or what the notes are going to be. Just get it on paper and see what happens um, and so I wrote it quite quickly it was an idea I'd had quite a while before and um, I'd always sort of pictured Emma doing it but never ever wildest dreams thought that that was what's actually going to happen but it was very much that energy to the character um, and so I wrote this thing and I thought is it a play is it a screenplay I don't really know I just wanted to I liked it I thought oh I quite like what I've written there I'd like someone to see that now and see what other people think of it. Uh, And so I entered it for a competition and then I withdrew it from the competition because a producer asked for COVID safe projects. And this is a two hander in a hotel room. Uh, and it's even the same hotel room. Like I like to write things cheap so they stand some sort of chance of getting made. <laughs> so, you know, you won't find, you know, six elephants in anything I write or, you know, I barely even write dinner scenes so that everything can be done in the daylight. <laughs> you know, can this be a lunch? I remember Armando Iannucci saying that about scripts. If it's a dinner, ask yourself if it can be a lunch because you'll save about 10 grand off the budget. I wrote, <laughs> and so I knew a producer, my agent said, was looking for COVID safe projects. And I just thought, I'll just send this in her and see what she thinks and and she really liked it and I said well I'd always pictured Emma doing it and I knew Emma um from I did Nanny McPhee with her and we'd stayed in touch and I just thought you know what all the worst that can happen is that she can email me back and say I hate it I hate you (laughs) (laughs) we are no longer friends um no so I just thought well you know just give it a go and see what happens and she came back she said I just really responded to this and I just 
think we should do this and then because it's Emma it just happens and so it it, it was a quite an extraordinary and, and unexpected journey that that took but it, it was good in a way because I sort of reminded me that sometimes just very very occasionally if you just sit down and write something to please yourself it might just get other people excited and I think I might have lost sight of that a little bit, actually. So, yeah, so it's it's been extraordinary. <laughs> I still can't quite believe it. This, this, that's interesting. Why, why do you think you kind of lost sight of writing for something that you want to write and have pleasure in writing and, you know, is a story you want to tell? What, what, why, why, is, why is that, do you think? I think mainly just because when you reach a point where you perhaps have a family and you have a responsibility to earn money and, you know, you can't earn money in exactly the way you want to with exactly the project you want to do, how you want to do them, that doesn't always happen that way. Um, and so you start doing other things and, and, you know, other work that took my time away from writing or if I got a writing job, then it would come with a brief usually and a set of requests. And, and you just get into that sort of mode where you're, working for hire which is fine which is great but it can also mean that after a few years you sort of slightly forget what it's like to just sit down and just write something that nobody may ever see and just see what comes out so uh, it was weird in a way because I think it was actually a quiet patch career-wise that made me go well I'm not doing anything else I might as well sit down and write this remind yourself how to type but I think it's pretty common it's very hard to make a constant good living as a writer so you make compromises we talked about the stresses on biopic when you write a script and obviously you have an idea of how things are said you've got Emma Thompson in your film do you give her notes going now you've got to stress this word in this very particular way or do you leave do you leave her to get on with it? Oh no I just left her to get on with it I mean it's Emma Thompson <laughs> and, and also I'd sort of written it with her cadences in my mind in some way so she actually phoned me and just said oh the lines are so beautifully paced they just sort of speak themselves you know my heart sang at that I just thought oh my god this is this just gets better and better you know <laughs> it's real so um so yeah I mean I what I'm not keen on is that some some there's a sort of trend now sometimes for this sort of stuttering speech of, uh, of re- reaching for the word and uh, and I think it's because it's meant to sound more real but actually I think as an actor anyway when I'm given a script I just like to say the exact words I'm given I feel like they're there for a reason <laughs> and that actually sounds more natural so uh, so yeah but it's a funny thing handing over handing it all over isn't it, it always is oh my it, yeah and 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 this is of course this this feeds into you handing over your life story yes. in some respects to, to to the to the movie industry <laughs> and of course when when you when you do that there's a meeting right there's a meeting hollywood bollywood nollywood loves i'm sure meetings mm-hmm. um so where would you have this meeting with the with the team about the biopic being green lit where would you meet them i'm obviously for your film i guess it was quite difficult probably all over zoom mostly i'm, I'm oh assuming. i've never met i don't think uh, i've met anyone involved other than emma <laughs> <laughs> um where will we meet well since i was a kid i've always just loved the whole idea of the la scene and the movie scene and hollywood and all of that sort of stuff so what i would want is the full sort of iconic 12 people round a table Hollywood breakfast yes um yes. I don't know where's an iconic LA restaurant they've all just gone out of my oh, head Chateau now. Marmont yes or something Chateau like Marmont. that yes the garden of Chateau Marmont where kind of people walk by the pool to the cabins and everyone stops to say hello and all of that and you know just wave to Dustin yeah. Hoffman does Dustin wave back of course he waves back yeah sure I mean you can't quite place okay. me possibly I was the chunky lady in bridesmaids from a distance <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think the whole point of that scene that I like is just you wait to just to be sure, just in case. Yes. You know, I think everyone, that's what yes. I quite like about that. I think, I know people find it fake, but I love it. I think it's really, <laughs> I just like that whole super professionalism. Like, I don't know who you are, but you might, one day you might be running this town. So I'm going to wait back. <laughs> a th- is a thumbs up too over familiar? Is that a little bit like, oh, thumbs yeah, up's th- a risky proposition. Thumbs up feels to me the province now of terrible politicians. I feel I've seen more more terrible politician thumb like in the past five years <laughs> than I ever wanted to see like I just no no thumbs up just a wave possibly a jokey salute possibly a, jokey a jokey salute. salute yes yeah but that can be misinterpreted and maybe over familiar so I would just stick with the wave less is more that's what I say just the a wave. wave yeah and then back to your conversation that's, I like that slatted you know the light coming in through blinds that that LA light coming through and palms in yes. pots and wicker large yes. wicker chairs and you know glasses yes. of iced water on the table and like you know these people are going to do yes. some business today that's what I like no I don't want to go for a coffee and a chat I want to do some business <laughs> You do the deals at breakfast. So I, that's all I, I want breakfast meetings in LA, ideally. And is it a long, is it a long drawn out meeting or is it just no. business and you down to it's 45 minutes? Hour. We've got other stuff to oh. do. <laughs> wow. That is a quick meeting. I don't see a, why a anything quick needs to meeting. be more than 45 minutes. I don't. <laughs> well, exciting news, Katie. Exciting Thank news. You. Your life has been greenlit for a biopic. Oh, but how great. would your life be told by Hollywood? And what sort of creative control would you exercise in bringing the greatest story you know to the big screen? So that the, the opening question, what's the film called, Katie? What is the Katie Brand biopic called? I think it would be called Don't Look Down, which is sort of a bit of a motto for life for me. Just don't look down. Just keep climbing, just keep going. Because if you look down, that's when you get vertigo. So, and, and you stop and you get frightened and you just want to cling on for a bit. And also, you know, I'm not that I'm going to say that I'm some sort of big into astrology or anything, but I am a Capricorn and I do some Capricorn traits. Uh, and I always have in my mind, sometimes when I'm doing things or if I'm working quite hard or I'm just trying to get something done, I have this little Capricorn goat image in my head. Because <laughs> I'm just edging up the side of a cliff. Just keep climbing, keep climbing, little Capricorn goat. Uh, don't look down, don't look down. You'll fall off if you look down. It's it's a, it's a it, I, mean, I like the title. Obviously, vertigo's taken. Yeah. Um, so it, no, it no, could, no. But it's not. I don't want that. to inspire vertigo. It's a piece of advice. It's not a diagnosis. Don't look down <laughs> to avoid vertigo. But that might be a bit long. <laughs> In order to avoid vertigo, brackets don't look down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering, though, the, the don't look down, the premise of don't look down. And believe you me, Katie, we're going to get back to the Capricorn goat in your head and, okay. and up the up the up, up the rock face. <laughs> but but don't look down. When did that become something you started to think about in terms of your career, in terms of progression? The phrase itself is quite recent, I think, um, probably sort of the last few four or five years or so. But uh, just because I sort of entered a bit of a new phase, just do this and don't look down. Like, don't you'll you'll scare yourself if you look. It's a long way to fall. But but I think it's a sort of trait. I think it's been with me for quite a long time. I think just this sort of feeling of pressing on of, you know, OK, that didn't work. Let's move on. OK, let the, OK, we'll try that. Didn't Did it work? OK, well, let's take what we can get from that and do the next thing. So 
Um, I've always been a bit like that. It's not always sort of most relaxing way to live or to live with, <laughs> but I, <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to calm that aspect of myself down a little bit, but I think that's always been there, just always pressing on what's next, what should we do next sort of thing. I'm, I'm assuming that's pretty helpful working in comedy. I'm assuming that mentality is, is key to that profession, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you do. It is a kind of madness to just say voluntarily, I'm going to walk out on stage in a room and I'll be the only person facing the wrong way. Uh, and I'm going to make <laughs> you pay money to come here on the promise, the promise that I'm going to make you laugh. Just, to, you know, like you do just sometimes think, what are you doing? <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to do. Like it to want to do or to feel the urge to do somehow so so I think you have to not sort of think too hard about it sometimes because if you do you're going to think what you do just think what am I doing and I have actually thought that literally seconds before I've walked out on stage just what <laughs> do I think I'm doing I'm just going to walk out here and with some words just justify the price of your ticket some words I just made with up some words. yeah you know just it's it's an odd sort of weightless feeling you do and, and when it's sort of going well you can get this sort of weightless feeling and when it's going badly equally you know sort of slightly lightheaded and so um so I just sort of I think I've always had that sense of just don't don't look down don't look at the view from up here you have to just keep looking forward or keep looking up and and then you don't frighten yourself with it so um so yeah I think that is a big part of just walking out on stage it's a sort of discipline almost because everything in your body's just going run away <laughs> Um, it sounds like there's the, the, you got three you got it's not it's not just the fight or flight response that comedians have it's fight flight do stand up in front of an audience yes. there's three there's three options they choose well it's make them laugh fight flight or make them laugh i mean that's that is the third survival <laughs> option i think you know if you can make someone laugh i feel they're less likely to kill you <laughs> in fact i think there's a billy wilder quote to that extent isn't it something like um if you're going to tell people the truth make them laugh or they'll kill you i think i've always had that <laughs> i've always had that in the back of my mind too <laughs> When you say you, you've like, just before you got on stage, you've had that moment where you thought, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, can you, can you remember those moments? And like, were they, were they, were they quite far into your career as well? Did that, ever, yeah. did that ever leave you? No, it never, it never did quite leave me actually. And I, and I think in some respects, I've always had a slightly love hate relationship with performing, uh, particularly performing as myself alone on stage. And, and and I find it tricky temperamentally. Um, sometimes I love it, but and I, I always love being part of a bill, like doing 20 minutes and things like that. But I think it's true in the UK, particularly, that in order to really get ahead career-wise or to get your writing in front of more people and to be able to take it to other places, you have to really do that hour. Like you have to, and I don't know after the pandemic to what extent going to Edinburgh is still going to be a big thing. But certainly in my career, that was what you had to do. You had to generate an hour of material and take it with you and go to Edinburgh and prove yourself and go on tour and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I did always find that a little bit tricky. And so I'd often had the what are you doing moment before I walk out on stage. But I, I think looking back in some respects, a lot of it was that I just loved writing and I loved talking about ideas and writing writing them down and writing an hour-long show and even though it felt chatty when I was doing it it was actually very written and so I just think on some level I thought that the quickest and most efficient way for me to get my writing out there is just to perform it 
uh, myself as cheaply as possible <laughs> and so uh, and so yeah I think early on I think it was a lot to do with that I mean I was a bit of a show-off and I did like it and I liked I certainly like walking out on stage when no one knew what to expect or who I was uh, it gets harder when people have an expectation and then you have to deliver on that expectation and all of that sort of oh, stuff that's interesting uh, and so I I found that and actually it became less and less sort of fun in some respects I guess and you take more responsibility and you have to be responsible if you're charging people money for tickets and so on I I've never quite resolved that that feeling of going oh my god what are you doing <laughs> but it wasn't the writing so much it was just me delivering on a performance I think was was the sort of anxiety that that's interesting you say that um it became harder with when there was greater expectation around your performance and what you were going to do. Cause of course you took your very successful show ITV two show on tour. I did. So was, was that, was that that experience that all of a sudden you had people expecting what you would be like on stage off the back of that show. And obviously you did the show on stage, but maybe you had different elements of your comedy in there as well that weren't you know, part of the well, TV show. Yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting tour that, and I and I have toured subsequently, but that was my first experience of it, and and it was sort of made clear that people would expect to see the TV show on stage, um, and that's what we needed to deliver, and so the idea that, that that I could do something a little bit more low key or something that was an exploration of one character over one half of the show didn't feel like it was in the mix or an available option so it was like if you're going to do this tour it needs to be this type of tour and it was really enjoyable it was a good show I'm proud of that show it wasn't there was nothing that I sort of thought this show doesn't properly represent the tv show or I don't like these things or anything like that it was just it was sort of 16 costume changes really frantic like each thing was only three minutes long and we had a massive screen and I was running around and entering through the front of the theater there was one character where I would leave the stage as one character and I had a minute to get fully from like Kate Winslet into Captain Rosie or something like head to toe costume change (laughs) and then we thought it'd be brilliant if I ran round the back of the theater exited the theater and entered through the stalls as Captain Rosie with a kind of roving it was an army captain character I used to do a roving light back in and up the stage and it did work brilliantly except for the handful of times where I got locked out of the theater and, and couldn't <laughs> and couldn't get back in through the front and I could hear the queue starting <laughs> and it was literally like I was supposed to enter with a load of adrenaline and it was like so often I was so terrified and it was a new theatre every night so I always knew the route so I'd have to go and check the Captain Rosie route and sometimes it would be like this gate wasn't locked before <laughs> like you know it was just the sort of it was ridiculous and so yeah, I mean, it was fun in that respect. And I also did the single ladies dance dressed as Captain Rosie to close the first half of that. And that was always fun. So there, there was sort of things about it that I think that was just really fun, those bits. But at the end, I also thought, I'm not sure this is the sort of work that I want to do forever. And it wasn't, we didn't sell like loads and loads of tickets. And I thought we wouldn't. I thought, I'm not sure that people are quite, I'm famous enough as a, a lone woman as well to, to sell these tickets that we need to sell in these huge theatres so I sort of came off the back of that tour just quite introspective I think thinking that was a good show but what do I really want to do I'm not going to do any more of that now and I drew quite a hard line in the sand and people were often phoning me up and going oh will you come and walk the red carpet as the queen and someone asked me would you ride a bicycle down this red carpet dressed as Lily Allen (laughs) you know will you open this shop dressed as Kate Moss and it was sort of like, oh, no, 
I don't, I don't want to. I want to write some things. And, and that's what I think I suddenly thought, actually, I want to do that and write longer form stuff. So I think the tour just, just for me anyway, drew a line under it. But by that point, I was quite firmly in that box as a kind of noisy, shouty, ITV, brash, sort of slightly trashy comedian who kind of went yelling her head <laughs> off about comedians. And so I may have thought this to myself, but it's taken quite a long time to convince other people uh, that, you know, I wanted to have a slightly different tone. <laughs> I mean, for the, for the film's opening scene, I mean, we've already got the idea of, of a goat up a mountain or yeah. you at a gate shouting, this wasn't locked before <laughs> as an opening scene to the biopic. You or a character playing you. It's quite a powerful image. It's quite a metaphor, isn't it? Just someone yes. at a gate going, this wasn't locked before. Yes. So what So what would, what would the opening scene to Don't Look Down be then? I like the idea of kind of intercutting with a mountain goat. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the idea of sort of intercutting between, you know, early stages of, of me as a child being determined to do everything myself and, and refusing all help. Like I would always insist on carrying all the beach stuff down to the beach for a family of four. <laughs> and there are photos of me slightly comically doing that. And, and I do remember this sense of responsibility that I was going to need to sort things out, you know. And then I guess I, you sort of reach a point like the blockade where you think I've done all my prep, I checked this route, I've done this, I've done all the things I can responsible, and now this. What? And then you have to slide <laughs> down the wall, don't you, uh, next to the lock gate, accept and realise that you're not going to make it to the front of the stage in time to enter as Captain Rosie. And I've done everything I can to get there. And yet someone <laughs> locked a gate and I have to confront the realities of the world and how random things can happen, random unfair things can happen. And you still have to adapt and find a way through. And yet, and yet, and yet the universe conspires <laughs> to, to somehow you know prevent you from the best laid plans is that something you've had throughout your life is that is that kind of you are you a are you a planner are you a prepared planner person I sort of am and I'm not I don't know it's odd because I I think anyone who was at school with me would remember someone who always left all the work to the last minute and so I've and so I would sort of dare myself like how late can I leave <laughs> and I quite like how little revision can I do and still somehow get through this exam it was like a real adrenaline rush and I think, I, and, and I did performance then too, and I was always seeking out ways to, you know, do singing or dancing or whatever. And no one, I think, at that time would have thought of me as a planner or a preparer at all. So I think this is something I've sort of grown into. But I think I was right, always okay. looking for a buzz of being a bit underprepared. And unlike Boris Johnson, I feel like I've grown out of that. Uh, <laughs> particularly in the last few years. And actually now I much prefer being prepared and I do do my prep and it's not all about winging it all the time. So, and I don't, I don't know why I needed that excitement all the time of nearly failing. I, it was always like I was storifying everything. Can she do it? You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like this. You could just start a bit earlier. Would you tell yourself, would you, if you could, would you tell yourself to not put yourself through that kind of procrastination roller coaster? that you obviously rode for so many years, would you tell yourself not to, or do you think that is just sort of the lesson that you need to learn to kind of, I don't know, change later in life? I think to some extent, when you feel like you can deliver when you're slightly underprepared, and it didn't always work, and sometimes I obviously fell flat on my face, but it, it can give you a bit of swagger and arrogance, and that's not always especially charming 
all gracious for other people to be around but I can't deny that it's a help in this business you know but <laughs> but I I think you know what happened to me was I had some of that sort of swagger and stuff at the beginning um and I think it probably served me all, all right actually even though people may not have liked me or I may not have given a, you know I was pushing on all the time doing I can do this I think I can do this I'm just going to try it and I'll do it and I'll do it and then I think you know I had a period where I think everybody has this um in this job where things went quiet and I really did have to reassess and just grow up a bit I think and 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 work a bit harder and find other opportunities that needed more preparation or something like that and so although it gave me I don't know if I would change it uh even though I might well have been a pain in the ass 90% of the time I think in some respects it probably got me on a ladder that has enabled me to get here uh, hopefully a bit more grown up and a bit nicer and also a bit more likely to hit my deadlines without giving everyone a heart <laughs> attack you know <laughs> I don't want to live like that anymore it's exhausting was it necessary to kind of have that sense of swagger and that sense of um, ownership because of course it has been well documented how hard women have had to work in the comedy scene to get as the, the, the same visibility as male comedians yeah. things seem to be changing but, you know, the early 2000s, do you, do you feel that was needed in order to kind of make your mark? Uh, yeah, I don't think people necessarily liked it, though. I think it is needed, though. Uh, and anyone, to be honest, it's not just women. It's anyone who is a sort of not white and not male, I think, is, has a hard time in UK comedy. But not on the live scene so much, I think, but just more TV. I mean, I think it was shown recently that TV comedy in the UK has actually dropped production-wise by 40%. And still, of what's left well over 80% of it is made by white men. So uh, many of whom are my great friends who I think are brilliant and talented and I love their work, but the statistics are not, uh, you can't really deny them. So a lot of us are being shut out. Um, and I think to break through, you do have to come in with some force and not everyone likes that. And not everyone in the art scene particularly likes women coming through with force. Um, there's a sense that you sort of should be invited or wait to be given or, or, or sort of be in someone else's show and have people discover you. That, yeah. that, that there's a sort of dign more dignified and charming way to right. come on yeah. to the scene, you know, to just come in and go, I'm here and I'm doing that. I'm doing it on my own. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I think there is a sort of, oh, okay. You know, the <laughs> so you have to have some of that to, to, to walk out there anyway, I think. Um, and I think you just, I don't mind it professionally. I like it professionally when people are quite forceful and, and proud of what they've done and, and, and confident and stuff. And like I said at the beginning, the whole LA scene, I always found very thrilling uh, when I was growing up. So that whole vibe, I don't mind at all. I think the thing you have to try not to do is become a complete arsehole in your personal life as a result <laughs> of that. And, and that can be hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> well... I, with all this in mind, then, with the, the, the need for swagger, goat-like qualities, <laughs> who, would, who would be cast as Katie Brand in, in, in the biopic of your life? Who, who would be you? I, I just want Angelina Jolie to play me. I, um, I, she might need to bulk up a bit, but, you know, <laughs> it would be her raging bull moment, I think. You know, she might... <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, why not? I just think, why not? I, it, what even makes me laugh is, do you remember Dr. Fauci, I think, was asked as a joke question, who would play you? And he sort of said, yeah. Brad Pitt, like as a joke. And then Brad yeah. Pitt played him on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so I just think, just 
you know, I'm just putting it out there. Why Jolie? Obviously, you know, you might as well ask for her and get her. Even if, by the way, I do believe her, her box office returns aren't good. I think she's one of those actors who, who gets paid an awful lot per film and that actually the return is, isn't great. No, the, 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 the track record from a film point of view, I'm hoping we can maybe re, uh, rehabilitate her film career. <laughs> maybe. <gasps> like a Travolta Pulp Fiction kind of thing. Yes. Maybe, if she's interested. I don't know. I mean, she may simply not be interested. I played her in my sketch show, actually, as a sort of Tarzan figure who was <laughs> saving rainforests and talking to animals. And she had this special sex potion that dripped down her throat when she became angry <laughs> that, gave her, that gave her superpowers. <laughs> they made me a leather leotard, like a couture leather leotard, where I had to stand in a room while people stitched bits of leather on, onto my body. <laughs> but, what? Yeah, I've got a picture of it somewhere. But anyway, um, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm being a bit ridiculous. She's known to be one of the world's most extraordinarily beautiful women. So I'm being a bit fanciful. But I, I, I guess. Katie, I, it's your film. Exactly. It's your film, Katie. Why not? I think also, I, I, she just appeals to me, I think, I, in some ways. I mean, I, I like the idea of Angelina Jolie. I like I like the sort of Lara Croft element of her. I mean, no, she can do a British accent, sort of. That sort of questing feeling. I always like heroes' journey mm. stories, you know, and I think she's good at those. I think she likes them too. She just doesn't pick very good ones for some reason. But just she's got that sort of sense of drive and just a sort of no nonsense straightforwardness that I'd I'd like to I'd like to see represented in the film if at all possible you know but in a flattering nice way that would make people like me I mean <laughs> <laughs> can you can you can you picture her slumped against the wall in an alley dressed as cap dressed in a captain's uniform yes why me why I think me? I've seen it can you see that I'm pretty sure I've seen her doing that <laughs> obviously we're gonna have a triumphant ending right so yes. you know she's gonna start low and we're gonna get her all the way up to the top of the mountain do you think she's underappreciated uh, as, as an actor um Jolie? No. because she's been around for such a long time no you don't, you don't. I, I I don't think she's a superb actress I think she's a film star uh, and so uh, I think sometimes she's picking parts that are, <laughs> I've never actually had to have a meeting with her. This, <laughs> Imagine, hilarious. Um, I am actually, to be honest, having done my sketch show, that was a real hazard all the time. If you do a sketch show where you relentlessly take the piss out of celebrities and then you are <laughs> become slightly famous yourself and end up going to parties and award ceremonies, it is hazardous, let me just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it is hazardous. Go on. Um, Go on. What happened? What's happened? Oh no, no, no! I won't. I won't. I won't. There were there have been various <laughs> encounters over the years, but um, but I had a very good one with Kate Moss, and she was a real laugh actually. But uh, but yeah, no, that for another time. But uh, but I think um, <laughs> what's I going to say? Yeah, I think Angelina Jolie is just a, a dazzling, dazzling film star, and should play parts that are kind of proper film star parts. So like Lara Croft, I think those are good parts for her. So yeah. everything should be yeah. elevated and a bit hyper real. You know, she's so beautiful. It's ridiculous. So you have to just bow to that. Like you have to, you have to say she's sort of made of some sort of superior material from outer space. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> therefore she's just going to lo be luminous all the time. So you have to sort of, so that's what I'm looking for for the fantasy version of me is someone who's luminosity. <laughs> <laughs> it just shines out and you know that they're gonna win no matter what so we've got we've got Jolie cast she also looks like someone who could sort of look after herself you know what I mean yeah a bit, a bit tasty yeah oh yeah 
Of course, it brings us back to the cage fighting, Katie. You yes. need you need someone who who can actually <laughs> handle themselves. It's yeah. a bit tasty. So we've got Joe Lee. We yeah. know we know the range of her skills, mm-hmm. and we know the film star quality she's have she has. Um, I'm wondering what genre of film would Don't Look Down be, and why? And what sort of budget are we looking at? And I'm thinking Don't Look Down. You know, you've got Joe Lee that in there. You've got obviously one of your books, I Carried a Watermelon, as a homage to Dirty Dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your another one of your books deals with Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. All these different film influences kind of percolating around there, or sort of bustling around there. Mm. Would it be kind of a magical reality, sort of a, what is it, magical realism? What would you what would you go for? Would you try and incorporate those pieces within your life into the film? Well, I think it should have, I, I always like this, I like a sort of Nora Ephron tone. I like nice, um, mm. I, I, so, so I think it would have to be a comedy essentially, but it's a sort of comedy and, isn't it? Everyone wants to do comedy drama or, so I, I do, like I said, I do like a hero's journey story. So I think that's structurally what we're doing, becoming the ordinary world. And then, you know, the thing happens yeah. and then you kind of, everything changes and you have to find your allies and your mentors and your enemies and go to the heart of darkness and come out stronger well I like all of that stuff but I think with comic <laughs> elements so it's a comic hero's journey story I think you know like Pixar does that's essentially the whole of Pixar's output so let, let's say like that uh, and then ah, okay. Uh, so that sort of story you know Star Wars <laughs> Star Wars but centered on the UK comedy club scene <laughs> <laughs> Who's Darth Vader then? Who's Darth well, Vader in that case? Well, I'll never tell. I'll never tell. I've actually got quite a short shit list for someone who's been working for so long, to be honest. There's less than 10 <laughs> people on it. Um, but <laughs> but I um, I think, um, so yeah, I think that sort of genre, I like this, so yeah, the hero's quest, hero's journey story with, with a good sort of comic element, like sort of Nora Ephron type, nice rat-a-tat dialogue, you know, nothing too... Yeah not too many monologues like a bit of you know quick fire back and forth all of that sort of stuff and um, budget wise yeah, yeah I'd like it to I think it should be quite low budget I think I think Angelina <sighs> might have to accept you know be paid scale she might she might be willing to accept that if the script is good enough surely it's a passion project why not like George Clooney says one for the money one for me but perhaps this could be one for Angelina maybe maybe <laughs> who knows who knows and so uh yeah I think um <laughs> I think less than four million. Uh, I was once told there's like a terrible gap. You cannot really make a film properly that's between four million and ten million. It either has to be well, sort of four six million. Either has to be under that or over twelve, because like right. the, in in the middle, you need a big, quite a big star in order to justify yep. a ten million pound budget. But a star big enough to justify that is going to want more money than your ten million budget will allow. So you yeah. have to then tip her into another bracket in order to get a star big enough to make the money back. And then under 4 million, you can sort of make the money work like that. But if you go in this sort of funny, hazy bit in the middle, then you're sort of paying too much money for the film you're trying to make. So I think let's play safe and go 4 million and under. See, I, my, my thing is if, if, you, if you spend 4 million on a film and you make 4 million and one pounds at the box office, then it's essentially a hit. <laughs> <laughs> if you make a 20 million pound film and only take 15 million at the box office, it's a flop. So, you know. Yes. I mean, you, you've, you've probably seen films which, which you thought, God, they spent that much money on this. I know that the DC Marvel 
all of that stuff is big deal, big money, saving cinema. Yep. But sometimes I think there should have been a line <laughs> in the budget for a coherent story, though. <laughs> um, I, I sometimes look at those films, though, the Avengers Assemble type films, and just think, yeah. Jesus, the wattage in this room of stars. This is incredible. This is extraordinary. I mean, it is a sort of that alone impresses me. I just think that's an that scene is an event like to have this. And then I start looking again, were they in the same room though? And then I start looking, I go, uh, are they in the wide shot? Is there any mid shots here? Oh no, hold on. This whole scene is singles. Oh, I see. They've come in one at a time and everyone else is a stand-in. Okay, fine. <laughs> do you think do you think the stand-ins should get a cut of some of their fee because they have to be really good stand-ins to yeah. kind of pull those performances out of them. Yeah, what I would love to see is a cut of the film with only the stand-ins because they must be in all yes. the shots. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to have costumes. All the reverse. You see the back all, of their all... heads. Yeah, all the reverse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the reverse. So you see their faces and it's some guy like, that is not Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> that is some, That's who is that? It's and he's there with his little with... Thor hat on or whatever. Yeah. There was always that, was it about Garbo or something about Garbo standing where they said she had everything Garbo had except the one thing Garbo had or something like that. Yeah. It, the nature of what is star quality and what isn't um, is sort of quite interesting. But yeah. So uh, so less than four million, I mean, comic tone, comic hero's journey, starring Angelina Jolie. Yeah. That sounds that sounds doable. And so and so is it good? so so, um, so it's doable. Sounds doable. Good. Sounds doable. If we can I think get, Jolie would come aboard. If we aboard. can get Jolie, then I think I think yeah. we're laughing. I think with and and the budget might even go up to five million once she Maybe. comes on board. You never know. Give her the whole four million. Just get me Angelina. <laughs> we'll shoot it guerrilla style. Yeah. So right, I'll shoot it on my iPhone. <laughs> I mean. There was a film called Tangerine. Sean Baker, have you seen? Have you seen that film? He shot it all on a on a on a phone on a, yeah. on, a on an iPhone. Well, the cameras are broadcast quality. It's just the storage that's the problem. Ah, uh, yes. So, but yeah, I think you can, can't you? I think you actually can shoot something on a phone that, that won't pixelate on a cinema screen. I believe. Okay, so we're shooting. Don't look down on on camera phones. Yeah. Then product placement, Katie. Product placement, you get in you get in one of the big, you know, uh, Apple or Huawei or whoever, mm-hmm. and that could fund part of the film potentially. Yep. And it's got that gorilla vibe and it's the, the, obviously the story's key, as you say. So yep. Jolie's there. If we could get sponsorship from um, Kettle Chips, I think that would be ideal. <laughs> I have consumed so many Kettle Chips backstage in comedy clubs. In Like, honestly... I think I don't mind. You could quite plausibly have a bag of kettle chips in every single scene and no one would notice. <laughs> I would. Do you know what, though? People will go to the cinema to watch Angelina Jolie eating kettle chips in see? every single scene. You see? It's a winner. Who have you, you've never seen. You've never seen Angelina Jolie eat crisps, have you? You've never seen a woman eat so many kettle chips. Yeah, you. <laughs> that could be the tagline. <laughs> Sound. Sound okay. don't like it. Sound don't it's, like it. It's in. It's in. It's in. And so in that case, apart from the consumption of crisps in back rooms of comedy clubs, Mm -hmm. which parts of your life would definitely have to be in Don't Look Down and why? Oh, I think going to Edinburgh for the first time as a student with my with a student comedy troupe uh, in the late 90s. I think that was quite something that sort of opened my eyes up to the excitement and the glamour, but also the darkness of the whole comedy world and, you know, becoming a bit nocturnal and being shoulder to shoulder with big comedy heroes in the courtyard. And I just think at that point, I really ignited something for me properly. I mean, prior to that, 
I was 18 then and prior to that I thought you know I like singing and I like dancing and I like doing drama and I like watching comedy on tv and I like mucking around with my friends um, and things like that but it was when I got to university that I went to an audition for um for this comedy review show and I went with a friend because she wanted to go and she said I'll oh, come with me I don't want to go on my own and and so I sort of turned up and I and I auditioned for this thing and, and there was a panel uh, of students who were already in it and they said tell us a joke so I, I start I, I started with the joke the the setup and then I was sort of nervous and my head suddenly went right and I literally just went I've forgotten the punchline and they all laughed uh, and I think perhaps on some level thought I was doing something clever with the form of comedy but I had just genuinely forgotten the punchline like it was like something stupid like <laughs> why did the owl owl or something like and I suddenly thought I can't remember what is it because the spider spider what is it? And, um, and so I got in, <laughs> I got in to this group and we went to Edinburgh and, and it was all quite sort of professional and exciting. And we were at the Gilded Balloon and, um, and I was going to these late night shows and I just hoovered up the whole place. Like, I don't mean in a cocaine way, uh, I, not <laughs> entirely, but I just, I just went there and I just went, I am doing this. Like I am in this, I want to be in this stuff here, this nice, dark, treacly, sticky stuff here. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that would need to be part of it. After university, I had a break and I thought to myself, I, I need to try and be sensible about this. I've done lots and lots of drama and all this acting and writing and comedy and stuff at university. And I don't know if I can really make a career out of this or if I should try. And I, and I'll, I'll go and work in production for a bit in TV. I still wanted to be in that world, but I thought it's best to try something else. And if you can be happy doing that, then, um, then do that because it'll be a lot more secure. So I did do that for a few years. And then it was later after that, that I met someone from university that said, Oh, I always thought you'd be doing comedy stuff uh, when I was about 25. And I thought, Oh, yeah, maybe I thought that too. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I have always assumed that at some point I'm going back to it. But unless I do it, it's not going to happen, is it? Like no one's going to bang yeah. down my door going, Katie, <laughs> we heard you were in a really good student review four years ago. You, you have to come and save comedy. Like no one's going to do that. <laughs> so at that point, I thought, right, I need to write myself a gig. And I went and did a gig in a room above a pub in Camden. And it was a really good gig and I wrote a character. And as a result of that, I was given a slot on this sketch group called Eating Live, which contained some of the best people around doing sketch comedy. And so I think that sort of moment of doing that gig that night in that pub kind of brought me to here, really. So that would need to be in there. That sounds very much like your procrastination there. Again, setting yourself a challenge, like how far through my 20s can <laughs> yeah. I get before I actually put, oh, I, I've got to stop putting this off and actually do it. That sounds kind of bang on still. Yeah, and then when I go, it's like, right, we're going really fast now, everyone. Look, don't worry, we'll pick that up later. <laughs> um, who was it? Who else was in that comedy troupe, in that sketch troupe that you were with? Oh, it was in. people like Tom Meaton and um, Gareth Tunley that have just been working together on a on um, a film called The Ghoul and, and the Channel 5 oh, show yes. and um, Lucy Montgomery and James Parkman, Alice yep. Lowe. Uh, ben Wilbond, oh, wow. who's in Ghosts and Horrible yes. Histories. Um, Barunka O'Shaughnessy, who now co-writes yep. a lot of stuff with Julia Davis and, and Sharon Horgan. Justin Edwards. So it was really all the people who now populate comedy sketch work together. And uh, Catherine Parkinson came in because we knew each other for a long time and we did some sketches together there. 
And so it was it was a good place because industry people came to watch it every week and they were just curious to know what was going on and who was out there. And sketch comedy wasn't especially trendy then. Um, and there wasn't a big live scene. You certainly couldn't get paid to do live sketch comedy in the way that you could get paid to do a stand up gig. So it was a nice little gang. And, and we did lots of gigs all around London at the Hen and Chickens, low down at the Albany, all of these places. And, and I'm then around the country. And, and I started to sort of think I need to develop some characters on my own. Because if I ever want to do a gig outside of this or go to Edinburgh or something, I need to, again, keep this cheap. So I started writing some characters just for myself to do. But the thing is, though, of course, in a film, that would be like a, a breakup. That would be rewritten as a breakup, wouldn't it? It would be like you're splitting the band up kind of thing. Because they tend to, biopics tend to do that, don't they? They dramatise those sequences. I wasn't honestly thinking all of a sudden, like... there'd be any other characters in it, to be honest, Toby. I just I assumed it was just... <laughs> We just spent all our money it on just, Angelina. Get her on screen. Get her on screen. And it's just, <laughs> and so there's no, there's no mention. Oh, is it, is it basically, would it be a shot of you, you talking to the sketch group, but it's just you facing the camera and the sketch group are behind our shoulders. So yep. we never see them. All They're stand like, in. we just hear, stand yeah, and it's all stand-ins. <laughs> and we just hear sort of like from behind the camera, oh, so you're leaving us then? Yeah. Yes, I'm off. That's, that's right, that's I'm it. off. Goodbye. I'm going to make my fortune. Um, I'm going to Edinburgh doing that French and Saunders sketch I always used to laugh at with Jackie and Joan Collins where they go, I've had enough and I'm going to Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, essentially yes. what I'd really like, right, if we could do this is I want it to be all one shot. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> um, on much, camera phone? Yes. We'd on need a camera to, phone? We need to rehearse it. A lot of the budget would go into rehearsal. <laughs> But I want a lot of shots of Angelina Jolie running, um, not necessarily because I myself am a talented runner, although I have had periods of my life where I was quite good at running and re really quite fit. Um, I wish I'd kept that up. But I, I'd like a lot of shots of Angelina running. I think she's, she's good at running right. and, I, and I always like running in films. But actually, on, on a more serious note, someone did point out to me recently and having written an obsessive book about dirty dancing and seen it 300 times, I had not noticed this, and I'm slightly annoyed that the book was published before this was pointed out to me. But Baby runs everywhere in that film. She does not walk anywhere. If she's not dancing or not sitting down uh, or not shagging Patrick Swayze, she's running. And someone <laughs> pointed this out that I watched it with within the first 20 minutes. And I could not unsee it after that. And he was absolutely, <laughs> he was absolutely right. And I just thought, why not? Why do we have to see her walking moodily from her cabin to the main house? Run! <laughs> Let's give this whole thing a sense of urgency. <laughs> what, what, do you think? Do you think all her scenes were being filmed towards the end of the day, and they're like, "We've really, we've got to, we we can't hang around. We've, we're yeah. we're up against the clock here. You've got to run." Yeah. Also, it was raining all the time while they filmed it, and they didn't have the budget to um, to change any of the days or have any rain cover. So I should think she was just running just to get that out of the rain, apart from anything else. <laughs> so it was cold. So it's not like a, a sexy choice then to have no. to have them kind of like glistening. No, no, it poured with rain, real serious lashing rain. And I went to the place where it filmed on a kind of personal pilgrimage uh, up in the Blue Mountains in Virginia. And uh, it poured with rain for one of the days I was there. And I was like, this is serious, proper like mountain rain. Like I, I would not want to be outside standing in a lake yeah. up to my nipples in this because it was the wrong time of year it wasn't the summer they had to put green dye into the grass and the leaves and things and it just ran <laughs> everywhere 
I mean, that's why it's called Dirty Dancing. They were filthy from all the dying. Absolutely filthy. So we know we know it's a hero's journey in the film. We know you're going to include those early years and, and Edinburgh and having your eyes awakened and you want a hero's ending. Yeah. Um, but what parts of your life would definitely have to be on the cutting room floor? Which moments of your life wouldn't make it to the final cut? Well, there's a pretty dry patch career-wise from sort of 2013 <laughs> to 2016, which I, I'm not keen to relive <laughs> from a career point of view. Um, I don't, you know, we can skate over those if you like. We can have a few wistful, we can right. have a montage. I think usually in a montage of this type, what happens is envelopes with bills land on the mat, don't they? <laughs> and then, then there's some sort of pictures of people looking troubled or maybe having an argument or looking out the window, sadly. And then more urgent, bills arrive on the yes. map, don't they? I'm just dropping a notebook yep. to make yep. the sound of envelopes landing on the map, sorry. <laughs> and then finally you open the, an envelope and it says in big red letters, final demand on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mind it represented as a montage, as long as we're clear that after the montage, the road to triumph is going to resume. Um, so tonally, yeah, <laughs> she could go on a yeah. run. It's a good opportunity for Angelina to do some running because people always yes. go on long runs when they're troubled in their heads in films. Yes, and so she can go like jogging, with, you know, looking a bit furrowed brow. <laughs> could she? Could she open the final demand thing and then do that thing that just drops it and runs because yeah. she drops it? It says final demand, and she drops it and runs immediately. Yeah, out the front door. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, so I think those years where I just wasn't sure what I was doing. Things felt very difficult. Things I just like it, it was just like I don't even know what I'm for in this business. Uh, I don't like want to do what I have been doing. I know what I want to be doing ultimately, but I'm not sure how I can chart a path to get there. Um, there felt like yeah. there were obstacles in the way, and it was just yeah, it was just quite a tough time where I just thought I just don't know what to do. And then yeah, around 2016, I thought, um, well, I've got this good story from when I was growing up when I was a teenager when I was a fundamentalist Christian for a bit. I was a full-on evangelical, happy, clappy Christian, you know, and I used to take assemblies at school and I sang in the band and Whoa. all of this. So yeah, I was full on, and I thought that's quite an interesting story. So I thought I'll try being a stand-up. I don't want to do sketches. No one's begging me to write their next big hit um, or even be in their next big hit. Um, the phone <laughs> has gone very, very quiet. So I think people think I've died. And um, <laughs> it was a sort of final attempt, really. It was like sort of this is the only thing I've got left to try. You know, let me just try in this. I've got this story to tell. It's quite an interesting story. I'll tell it as myself. I'll go to Edinburgh, I'll book the smallest room that there is that I can get. I have no idea if anyone's going to come. Uh, we'll keep my mantra, just be me and a microphone and my Bible. And let's see. And I literally thought, if this doesn't work, <laughs> I'm done. Like, I just, I don't, really? know what to, I don't know what to do. I mean, I can keep writing for myself and no one can stop me doing that. But I thought I would need to look for a different career now, something completely different, because I, I don't know how else to jumpstart any of this again. And um, it was a bit of a wobbly start. But I think because the story was quite interesting and unusual, it gained a bit of attention and, and it did quite well. And that was a real relief. And then I got to do it in London and I did take that show on tour, really as a result of that show going quite well. And the brilliant thing obviously is that I was only in a very small room. So any night where I managed to get the requisite number of people, I could say I was a sold out show. And then <laughs> people kind of think of you like, you know, so that period 2013 to 2016 from a career point of view 
I, I don't need to see that beyond a montage with a cool song or something. <laughs> And with that, with that show where you, you, you know, you, you say, you know, you, you thought, okay, I've got this story. I want to tell it. Was it really Monte Carlo or bust with that? Was it, was it, was it, did you feel like if, if this doesn't feel right after, after Edinburgh, if I don't kind of get the response that I would like, you know, would like to have, did it feel like, okay, that's it. I, I used to be a stage performer and now I'm a, a writer and that's not even a writer. I, I just thought I can't make this work. You know, it's not like people, like I said before, people thought of me as a kind of big, noisy sketch writer. And so it was quite hard to get people to take the idea seriously that I could maybe write a sitcom script or a book or a film or something like that. But I thought that it will yeah. it will be a hobby after this. And I'm just going to have to accept that I had a lot of nice attention early on and it was really good. And I, I and it was more like, OK, well, I'll, I'll get I'll go and work as a producer if I can or an assistant producer or maybe I'll retrain as something else entirely and that's really in the terms I was thinking and yeah I mean it was just like it wasn't like renting my clothes and thinking oh what is why doesn't anyone want me it was just like pragmatic like I can't I'm not just going to beat my head against this wall forever I, I have to earn a living apart from anything else uh, and people said why are you going to Edinburgh again and it was like well because I have to see if I can still connect with people on stage in this way and if people are interested in what I've got to offer and I'll just give it my best shot. This is my best shot. This is my best sort of story from my own life sort of thing. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's what I did. And luckily it worked. It worked slowly. It wasn't like sort of, and now it's all fixed and here's your BAFTA, uh, you know, and the keys to your new Porsche. It wasn't like that. It was very <laughs> slow, but enough to just make me think. I can if I just keep it's worth it's worth persevering. So that montage, you know, we've we've got that. That's that's the montage. The sad montage um, that's in the film. Sad mm -hmm. montage. Jolie picking up a letter. Final demand. Running a lot. We mentioned <laughs> this earlier. We mentioned a lot of influences earlier. Um, we, you, you know, you for don't look down. You've mentioned the king of comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, we've mentioned dirty dancing. Uh, I mentioned Poppins because you, you've written a book on that. Goats mm -hmm. are going to be in there. And don't forget, um, as well, of course, Nanny McPhee, Nanny Goat. Nanny and Goat. And then, of Very course, Angelina Jolie, you know, she wears those horns in Maleficent, not too far off wearing Listen, you know, goatee. I'm happy for her wear to wear the Maleficent costume, if that helps with the budget. <laughs> 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 I, I so what other what other would there be other influences on Don't Look Down from film or TV or theatre or literature or comics? Is there would, would there be any other sort of pressing um influences? Well, I like proper showbiz, you know. I mean it, I'm not sure a song would necessarily fit, but you know, I'd like to see a couple of dance numbers, perhaps from the point of view of Angelina. Well, she's watching At it. Least, she's watching you know, a dance sequence. Yeah, she could watch or a cabaret scene or something a bit sort of Liza Minnelli-esque with some proper choreography in it. I wouldn't mind seeing that. Um, I'd like a really good hip-hop soundtrack. Um, hip-hop, implausibly, Ooh. was a big part of my life growing up. Um, I utterly rejected the <laughs> 90s indie scene <laughs> as a white middle-class girl. <laughs> For some reason, it just did not play with me, even though I am naturally of that world. But I could not bear the sound of any of it. And I only wanted hip-hop. Um, really? And I still listen to that to go on stage and stuff like that. So a really nice, pounding, positive, energetic uh, soundtrack would be good. So I thought that. And I, I also like... I always found Gilbert and George quite a big influence. I know that's like make my bit wanky, but um, I liked all those people. And uh, people growing when I was growing up, the people I liked were just people who just didn't seem to give a shit. <laughs> you know, like who just put the work <laughs> out there. I was talking to someone else about this the other day, and, and something yeah. I've been watching about Jerry Seinfeld. I 
a few times recently when I've just sort of lost my nerve a bit with something. I've wanted to return to his Comedians in Cars getting coffee episodes, some of them in particular, and, and just something about the unapologetic nature of, of saying, this is my work, I've worked very hard on it, I've constructed it extremely carefully, and I think it's very good, and I'm going to put it out there. And even if you don't like, you can't tell you I didn't do any of that, or that I treated it casually, like it wasn't important. And so I, I've sort of, yeah. even though, you know, I imagine he's not the easiest person to live with, I think as a sort of artist in his niche, <laughs> that does not deviate from that, that just says, this is very, very important, this work, and I will do it with absolute clarity and focus. And therefore, you can not like it, but you can't say I didn't do the work. And I, I found people like that really quite interesting recently, actually, people who have real faith in their process. I think something like someone like Tracy Emin is a bit like that, you know, that she was trashed right. very early on for kind of being tabloidy and attention grabbing and trashy mm. and all of this stuff. And yet she's an incredible fine artist and, you know, who draws. Yep. She just has this unshakableness about her because she's done the work and she knows she's done the work. Um, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get someone like that saying, you know, someone like Serena Williams, you know, you're never going to hear them saying, oh, I've just been terribly lucky, I think. I don't really know how I got all this. You know, they've been there every <laughs> blood-soaked minute of their career knowing yeah. exactly how they got all this. Um, and, and that gives you a sort of, security in yourself I think no matter what people say so yeah I think people like that have actually influenced me quite recently and I, I'm glad of it it feels a more secure way to work rather than coming out all flashing lights and going well I'm here kind of I'm gonna dazzle you and then there's nothing underneath <laughs> you know so yeah steady steady is, is what I've learned I think so maybe that's the lesson at I the mean, end and the people who've influenced me in that way because actually that kind of kind of brings us on to the next question, but I will get, I'll ask the next question in a second after this question, okay. which is when you speak about people like someone like Jerry Seinfeld or Tracy Emin, the fact that they connect easily with so many people, is, is that often written off as being cheap or not particularly impressive? Because something like Tracy Emin, say the unmade beds of, of hers, which obviously I think, you know, is one of those things that got picked up in the tabloids and said, yeah. well, God, this is just an unmade bed. Mm. But it is something that hadn't been done before, at least I, I, had, I had never seen it been yeah. done before. Well, that's what they always say about modern art is when you say, you know, I could do that. And you say, but you didn't. But you didn't. Right. Mm. And that's the same with Jerry Seinfeld and, and, and Seinfeld. It's like it's a comedy about nothing. And mm. I've been rewatching it recently, actually. And yeah, I mean, there are lifestyle aspects in there and like life stories. But there is an awful, you know, there's an awful lot of nothing in there as well. Mm. And yet that obviously doesn't necessarily mean critics are going to go mad for it or mm. you know it's, it's somehow open to kind of being torn apart more because it's not weighty and I'm doing inverted fingers yeah. there for listeners and viewers I, I think it it's not even weighty I think and I think it's something I've noticed in some English critics and less so in other countries perhaps from criticism that I've read of various things that there does seem a desire for things to make you feel clever rather than feel other things like warm or fragile or connected or vulnerable that for some critics in the UK it seems to be important to feel clever when you watch something and I do think that that clouds out judgment of who are connecting directly with audiences in a different way and still in a very skillful way and an important way and artistically very good way um, and this does happen a bit in comedy criticism and and I think everybody knows you know the huge successful people who play huge audiences who just never ever seem to get a good review you know and and 
Yeah, I think there is that going on. But I do think that's less so in other some other countries. I think it seems to be something a bit particular to a certain type of English critic, not all the English critics. And I do think there are newer critics coming in now from a different different backgrounds with different ideas that don't just want to see sort of slightly brittle people going, oh, God, don't talk about that now. And then opening a nice bottle of white wine. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, there are other ways of people communicating with audiences. So, yeah, I think there is this idea of people who are a bit populist or too popular or just appeal to the masses, again, in inverted commas, not getting an easy ride with certain types of critics. Um, And so with Don't Look Down, Mm. if the critics love it or hate it, how would that affect you and your next project? Would it affect you and your next project? No, uh, it never has. I've, I've never been a critic's darling, really. And it's not that I don't care or that I can't see why it's life is a lot easier if if one or two critics decide to really champion you but I I just it's not something I look for or expect anymore and if someone gives me some nice reviews then that's a good bonus I've always sort of had a bit of a bloody mindedness about what I want to do and and what I want to say and of course if people hate it it hurts (laughs) but um and I would prefer them not to hate it but yeah I, I can't write things that that aren't me that aren't you know, and if, if if people don't like it for whatever reason, um, you know, I think I went down a route of trying to write things that might please certain people and they still hated it. So, you, you know, you sort of think, <laughs> well, perhaps you and I are just not going to connect. And there are some really good critics, ones that have given useful and constructive um, reviews to me and many others. And then there are terrible critics that just give sort of vicious, personal, odd reviews that are there. They love it or they hate it. And it's clearly all based on something else that's going on that I don't even know about. You know what I mean? Like, um, but so the good critics <laughs> yeah, are great. Yeah. But I think what I've learned to do is just have a, a mental idea of the people in my life or in my business whose opinion I trust and respect and and just see what they think and and ask them honestly what they think and and people have told me before those people no I don't think this is this isn't you can do better than this or I don't think this is going to work or whatever that's fine so you just have to find the people you trust to listen to I think so the critics do not affect anything anything I do because there's no point because if you try and please them and they still don't like it then what have you got you've just got something that nobody likes including you (laughs) 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 you just have to please yourself you really do I think that's true I think that's true so don't look down the meeting was in Chateau Marmont it was in LA um Mm -hmm. the you know when you were when you were kind of getting all the 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 deal together and what was going to happen in the film who was going to be cast where's the premiere taking place it's a really uncool uh, Leicester Square premiere. I, I am absolutely adamant about that. Well, I, I want full red carpet, paparazzi, crying crowds, people handing their mobile phone over the railings for Angelina to yes. say happy birthday to their grandma. You know, uh, yeah. I want flash bulbs, sparkly dresses. That's yeah. what I want cars pulling up. You know, I want security. Yeah. I want all of that, all of that, full, full, uncool Leicester Square premiere. <laughs> I mean, I it sounds it sounds incredibly glamorous. So who's invited? Who's going to be going? Pretty much anyone who wants to. T- <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> just me and Angelina. Um, I um. <laughs> I mean, that would be an incredible power move. By the way, what an incredible power move! It's just you and Angelina. No yeah, one else, no director. Hands. She has to hold my hand. We sit in the middle of an empty auditorium in Leicester Square and we hold hands and watch it together alone.
Do you watch it together or have you not by that stage seen it so many times? You basically do the red carpet walk, go in the cinema, out the back Straight into out a waiting the waiting car and go off for a drink. Yes, the yeah. dench march. I would, I, that is so mean. <laughs> I, I hate watching myself and I hate watching anything I've written or anything. I just, I, I'm really awful. I'm like a sort of, you know, when pandas have babies and they just drop them and forget about them. It's a bit, you know, it's <laughs> it's sort of a bit like that. No, I, I think I never watch anything I'm in or listen to anything I do or or necessarily reread things that I've written that are out and done. I just, I'd probably leave, I mean, to be honest, I mean, the real power move is to insist that only me and Angela go in and then leave her <laughs> alone to watch <laughs> 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 while I go have a meeting about what's happening next <laughs> yeah about about the streaming rights or whatever yes, yes. And, like, and so so do you think so Angel- Angelina's alone in the cinema in Leicester Square is she <laughs> is she eating popcorn she got her feet up on the seats or is she yeah, sort she of sat there looking around wants. bewildered she can have as many portions of nachos and sloppy cheese as she likes she can have jalapenos on it and extra cheese. <laughs> she can have whatever she wants. Honestly, I mean, it was either that or I would like to invite all the people I've ever done comedy or acted with or written with because you will never have more of a laugh in your life than with those people. I mean, I'm missing them a lot now, but it's just uh, there was a spate of weddings in that age where there's always a spate of weddings. So we all got to see each other a lot, but not in a work setting or when there was a kind of gig yeah. looming or in the kind of relentless psychological torture of the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and um, <laughs> so these are kind of just properly jubilant events, usually with free booze. And yeah. and I just thought, I just would never ever want to be at a jubilant event with free booze with any other group of people than these people that I've done comedy with for like the past 15, 20 years. They're just the silliest. I mean, at my wedding, I remember they, they, people, people with ties right around their heads scaling the walls to David Bowie songs and jumping down I was just like standing there like I don't have insurance (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any insurance guys it's either all of them or no one (laughs) (laughs) and then who is not invited to the premiere and why I mean earlier you spoke about having a very short shit list despite all your years in comedy (laughs) who wouldn't be invited to the premiere and why oh I'm not going to name names there's one or two. There's one or two uh, journalists who I think could can remain off the list, but I'm not going to name names. But there was a period of time where it was fashionable to commission hate pieces about me amongst the national press. And one or two people took that up quite enthusiastically. So really? see, the thing is, people people think I forget these things, but I don't. <laughs> really? Hate pieces? Hate pieces? I had someone recently, yeah, proper hate pieces. I had something, a, a critic recently actually with a podcast who wanted to have me on. And I did say, oh, come on, that's fine. It was a producer of his or some associate. It wasn't him directly. But I said, but is this the same guy that <laughs> said this about me in The Independent, like, <laughs> 2008? And it was a pretty bad thing that they said. And, and then they went back and said, oh, they'll check, they'll check. And I just never heard from them. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm happy to talk about it. Like, it might be quite an interesting thing for someone to talk to somebody who, you know, has given them a bad review and now they want to talk and they've forgotten about it, but the performer hasn't. Like, it's quite funny. So I said, I'll go on and talk about it. But no, nothing, just, just absolute radio silence then. So, wow. so, yeah, I have quite a long memory. So the seven, <laughs> the secret seven are not invited but to be perfectly honest judging oh, that's from, good judging from what they've said about me in the past i really i don't think it'll be their cup of tea to be honest <laughs> <laughs> well katie brand 
thank you so much for coming on to Greenlit. Don't Look Down, starring Angelina Jolie, with a budget of around £4 million, will hopefully be coming to cinemas soon. More people are not invited to the film than may well star in it. Um, Katie Brand, congratulations on being Greenlit. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you.